0: Okay, and we are live. Gabby. Hi. Gabriella. Introduce yourself, and normally I ask people to introduce themselves and not talk about work, so I'll do like a little (laughs) bit of intro because I'm messing with these things, trying to change them around, get people hooked into the conversation, and then let the conversation flow. So we will be talking about the zoo, San Diego Zoo, zoos in general, and all kinds of different animals and, you know, crazy side tangents. So, but until we get into that, Mm -hmm. why don't you introduce yourself and, you know, can't talk about work during your introduction.
1: Okay. Um, let's see. My name is Gabriela Munoz. I also go by Gabby. I moved to San Diego about five years ago and I uh, love traveling. I love meeting new people. I love new experiences, um, which kind of lends itself a bit to my line of work, which we can't discuss yet. But, um, yeah, I met Greg through uh, mutual friends, uh, a friend of mine from college, and through November Project, and it's been fun.
0: Yeah, and this is also part two. You'd have to go real far back to get to part one, Um, and... Well, even, we could even call this uh, take three because the first one uh, was so new, I didn't even know that there was a one hour cutoff limit on this recording device. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's a learning curve for all of us. We talked so much about like woolly mammoths and other like things that Random like, and then animals. like none of it. And then we couldn't recreate it. It was kind of sad, but you know, it's a learning True. experience. It is. Um, so let's dive right into it. So last time we talked, um, this thing COVID-19 hadn't mm-hmm. happened. Right. Um, And so let's kind of just say, like, what do you do for the zoo? And then we can kind of dive down into the rabbit holes.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'm a wildlife care specialist at the zoo, which is also known as a zookeeper. Um, We've recently updated kind of our titles just to kind of reflect a little bit more what we do. Um, And just as we all evolve and grow, so does uh the animal welfare field so does life in general so you'll so see when that- you
0: updated the name sorry to interrupt yeah. but like i mean uncle ben's is disappearing aunt jemima's disappearing what right. dr seuss now is like nope we're not producing six books anymore like was there that level of like updating it now we're like we're gender neutralizing like the terminologies and
1: so part of it was spurred on from um the partnership that we recently had with Animal Planet, there was a new show that they wanted to create a reality show about zoos. So, the first um, couple of years was based off of the Bronx Zoo, where they took um, cameras behind the scenes and interviewed zookeepers and um, other curators and other people that work in the field at the Bronx Zoo. And then there was a collaboration that happened with the San Diego Zoo to do something similar with both. Um, the zoo, and the safari park up in Escondido. So we're into, second season was just released, and while we were creating the first season, we had for a while been talking about updating titles and names and how we refer to things, um, just so it, again, reflects, um, I don't know if you would say politically correct, because it's not so much that as it is keeping up with how zoos have evolved over time. So instead of just keeping animals um, for public display, we are caring for animals, we are doing research, we are going out into the field to collaborate with conservation and research scientists, and then we are also educating the public, so hopefully they care about them too. So uh, the name went from zookeeper to wildlife care specialist. And then there are different things that you can specialize, so some people work just with reptiles some people just work with birds some people just work with the mammals so
0: but that's always been the same yeah but just the 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 title title of what you guys yeah yeah okay has
1: been updated
0: is there i mean do you have any like emotional ties to the change of the names or like what's what what do you feel about like (laughs) your new title
1: yeah so it's a bit of a mouthful it is um also when you say that it's a little bit
0: ambiguous ambiguous. what do you do what do you you out in africa like every like three months like what do you
1: do well some zookeepers do get sent to africa to do collaboration projects over there in fact uh last year before covid hit we had uh some wildlife care specialists who worked in the elephant department who went to retetti elephant orphanage to help collaborate with that program over there in kenya um we also sent uh a few keepers out to um the northeastern area of Kenya to do a Grevy zebra count because they're highly endangered. They're an unusual species of zebra where they're solitary for the most part, um, whereas most zebras live in herds. Um, so they're kind of harder to track and count. And part of the reason why we think they might be struggling um, is because they just, they're solitary. So they don't, can't rely on the herd to defend them. Um, and on top of that kenya has had a lot of drought so that's put a lot of pressure on wildlife in general in that area so um that combined with poaching and habitat loss it's just put grubby zebras in the hurt locker so they're they're um something uh, one species that we want to keep tabs on so we will do census counts out in kenya that's cool yeah
0: um but like how do you feel emotionally or do you have any like emotional ties or anything with the name change And do you think it's like a good step forward or what do you, what do you think the, like the achievement of changing the name has done?
1: Yeah, if I mean, any. I do think it is a good step forward because I think some people just hear the term, you know, zookeeper and they think someone either who just picks up shit all day or someone who... Um, is just there to, you know, keep the animals alive so that they can be on public display. And we do so much more than that. You know, we put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into the day-to-day care of these animals. We will stay overnight with them if that's needed. Um, you know, some of our animals have to be put on baby watch if we're expecting a baby. Um, so there's a lot of round-the-clock care that goes into these animals to make sure that they are um, not just surviving but thriving in our care so we don't want them just to exist day to day we want them to thrive so what does that mean we we put a lot of time and energy into enrichment we put a lot of time and energy into their nutrition programs and um you know just animal training using positive reinforcement training there's just a lot that goes into making sure that these animals are not just healthy but also happy you know so i think it's a good shift but that being said like Um, On the flip side, you know, people who hear, oh, you're a zookeeper, the San Diego Zoo, they get super excited and I know what that means and it's like a big to-do and people are always, you know, have a ton of questions for me and I'm happy to answer them. So then if I say I'm a wildlife care specialist, again, people may not always know that's
0: uh, a zookeeper, you know, and
1: so um, I think in terms of just people understanding what that means, it's going to take time for... that to coincide
0: on an overarching level do you really think that the animals are like happy considering they are like in a much smaller space than like if it was a you know elephant african elephant you know roaming Mm-hmm. you know like thousands of miles i know you guys aren't sea world but you know you think of like a water creature an ocean creature and they're in a captivity which uh-huh. normally they could swim or run or supply tens of thousands of miles right
1: right so that's a great <clears> question <throat> and i think that's an important thing to address because um, as a zoo or an aquarium you will never be able to recreate the pacific ocean you will never be able to recreate the african savanna. you can come close in terms of you know, species of trees and type of dirt and and things like that. But basically what we need to make sure is that these animals are able to express species specific behaviors. So we need to create the environment in which they can do that. So if an elephant is going to cool themselves off using a mud bath and that's one way that they thermoregulate in the summer and it acts kind of like an insect repellent and sunscreen for them, we provide mud holes for these elephants so they can go and do this natural behavior of splashing mud on their skin to help cool themselves down. Um, and it's funny you mentioned elephants as um, an animal that needs lots of space because actually, if they're given all of their food and water and it's just not something they have to migrate for, they will stay in a very small home range. They'll stay within, you know, 10 mile range. They're not going very far. Whereas, you know, you, you look at bird species, a lot of people forget that birds migrate thousands of miles every year. So, but most of the people are, you know, alarm calling, you know, with regard to animal welfare. And they look at elephants or other big animals just simply because they're big. Um, so insects, too. Some insects migrate thousands of miles, you know. And no Monarch one's really butterfly. worrying about, you know, insects being held in an aquarium, you know, or some okay. glass tank. So, so we,
0: we can go down that realm, then. <laughs> <laughs> um, is the human imposed social hierarchy which we can talk about the news that just came out about the cuttlefish or maybe not specifically i know you're Mm -hmm. an elephant expert but you most likely (laughs) saw uh what i'm talking about but um the hierarchy of people putting their own opinions on essentially like if it's fluffy and it looks cute, we value it more right. than if it's, like, slimy, scaly, scaly, gross. Yep. And, like, even, like, you know, oh, I'm a I'm a pescatarian because I don't want to, mm. like, harm animals. And it's like, yeah, but when you fish, you, you're hooking this thing in the mouth, yeah. ripping it out of the water and having Can't it breathe. suffocate yeah. to death in a hole. Then you throw it right. on ice where, like... Right if you let's you know cuz we talked about hunting last time but yeah. you know like if you were to say humanely terminate the life of a cow uh, right. you know usually it's a bolt to the head right. and they're dead almost instantly yep. like yep. that's actually way more friendly of a death than yeah. like being hooked yeah. out of the water um right. so
1: there is this hierarchy and you yeah. see it in in our legislation um for instance you know uh Dogs are considered physical property in most courts of law. They are not given the same rights as children or any sort of human animal. Um, there are some states that are slowly starting to pass legislation um, as it pertains to animal welfare, but um, in most states within the United States, you know, a dog is viewed as a piece of property that can be bought or sold, um, and it just doesn't have the same sort of um, Uh, independent rights that you would typically see with human beings. Now that being said, is a human life worth the same as a dog life? And I would say most people would argue no, um, and I understand the reasonings behind that, but I would challenge people to think about how life on earth is all connected and how we could not survive without animals and insects and plants and water and just so much of what makes our planet what it is. So I I hear what you're saying um, in terms of looking at abuse cases and neglect and whatnot, and uh, legislation, but you just have to look at COVID and what happened with a potential spillover event with either bats or pangolins. I know some people have argued that maybe it was just not the best protocol practices um, and biosecurity at a lab in China um, I'm not sure if we'll ever figure out the exact origin, um, well, yeah. but yeah, there's there are a lot of theories about what happened. But we do know that bats and pangolins, uh, pangolins are kind of a small, they look a little bit like an armadillo or an anteater, they're scaly, but they're mammals. They have um, hair under those scales and the scales are made of carotene, which is the same protein in your hair and your fingernails, but um, they eat ants like an anteater and they're the most trafficked animal on the planet in terms of illegally caught out of the wild Um, same reason as rhinos are killed for their horns so their Uh. scales are thought to be medicinal Um, and then they're also consumed for their meat so that they are sometimes using the animal's whole body when they are poached but um, that being said it's it's unsustainable at the rate at which they are caught and sold and killed Um, they just aren't producing enough to sustain the demand that's uh, mostly coming out of Um, Africa and into Asia. Pangolins are also found in Asia and pulled out of Asia into Asian wet markets. So um, bats uh, just have a really high metabolic rate and due to that higher body temperature uh, viruses thrive really well in their bodies. So um, what ends up happening is when you start consuming bats or just living in the vicinity of bats, there's a chance that potentially you could get sick from a virus they carry. Is it common? You know, a lot of people talk about rabies and bats. Um, those sorts of events actually aren't that common um, compared to, you know, getting diseases from other human beings, you know. So, yeah.
0: But when it does transfer over, that's when shit goes sideways because yeah. it yeah. becomes a novel for yep, exactly. a little while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, let's start going down the COVID rabbit hole then. Sure. Uh And so, like, what happened to the zoo? I mean, because it shut down, yeah. right? Like, and so.
1: So prior to the pandemic starting last March we, the only time the zoo had closed, we're open 365 days a year, was um, the day that Kennedy was assassinated. We were closed that afternoon. Other than that, in our entire history, we had been open every day of the year. Um, And then COVID hits and, you know, the governor in the state of California shut down schools. And that's when we also shut down. So that was mid-March. And then we opened up again mid-June because case numbers had dropped. And then the summer happens and then the holidays happens and then we closed again in january Um, and then we just recently reopened or no was it december Um, i want to say we closed december yeah and then we um, reopened recently mid-february so um, we've kind of had to be at the mercy of whatever the local and state authorities deem necessary Um, based off of COVID numbers. When we did reopen, it was at a limited capacity. So a busy day at the San Diego Zoo is about 30,000 people that visit. An average day is about 10,000 people. So we started when we reopened in June with only allowing about 3,000 people in. And then um, as we kind of, and that was with masks and social distancing, and making sure family groups were staying together. Um, each family group had kind of like a colored armband or wrist um, bracelet, so that, you know, people could, or security could monitor, making sure that people were kind of staying within their groups. Um, and then they they felt like that wasn't really necessary, but of course the mask wearing was still important along with encouraging the social distancing and all of our indoor activities, we don't have a ton, they were closed. So we have two small theaters, 40 theaters that were closed. Um, and then, like our bus tours, we're known for our big double decker buses that go around the zoo, those were closed. Mm. Um, and they did recently reopen our Skyfari, which is like our little gondola ride across well, the zoo. That is the best. <laughs> <laughs> And so, anyway, that that is uh something that they were able to figure out how to socially distance group and because really all you have to do is just between
0: use distance the line because yeah. like once you're on the gondola, you're like 50 feet exactly. from the next gondola. Yeah, so. yeah.
1: exactly. So yeah. I think it was more just a, a figuring out how to wipe down the gondola Let's between people. Put so. some bleach on it. Yeah. You're good to go. Yep. Yep. Let's go. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that reopened. um So. Unlike indoor facilities, like I have a girlfriend who is a a bird care specialist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. That's totally indoors. They've been closed for the entirety of this. So, in terms of revenue, like they are having a much harder time than we are because we were able to reopen because we're mostly outdoors. Um, So, that's just like a whole different situation.
0: When because you're a wildlife animal specialist and not Uh the accountant for the zoo i don't expect you to speak for the budgets and all that for the zoo but like i mean like is it did it get scary at a point of like oh fuck like are we gonna feed like all the creatures like yeah Um, i mean i
1: think the biggest thing that we were worried about in the beginning was just supply chains So we're, yeah, everyone was worried about food supply chain. So when it came to animal feed and hay and the produce that gets fed out to all the animals and then there's meat that's fed out to all the carnivores, you know, is that going to be a reliable food chain? Um, Yeah. So we...
0: Wait, you can't just do, like, what the Tiger King was doing and go get, like, you know, expired meats from, like,
1: Walmart? (laughs) Not exactly best animal care practices. So I would say no for San Diego Zoo. But, um, yeah, we uh, got really lucky. Like, I think a lot of people in the United States where our food supply chains remained intact, um, we have a lot of people to thank for that. We have a lot of... um, agricultural farm workers that continue to go to work every day. And were out there doing what's already a very manual, physical, hard job picking produce or working in a slaughterhouse. And um, they were able to help continue to feed most Americans and then the animals who also reside at the zoo. Now, that being said, you know, in terms of accountants, one thing that came to my mind is a lot of people who have office like jobs at the zoo, they worked from home or unfortunately, like our education department, They got furloughed so you know they got laid off and they had to um you know file for unemployment like so many americans had to do um i because i'm in charge of the day-to-day care of these animals was deemed quote-unquote essential so i went into work every day i continued to do my job outside you know of course we wear masks around the animals so i was really lucky you know very little of my life changed during covid other than not being able to go out to restaurants and socialize with my friends like I used to. So I'm super, super grateful for that. Um, and I got to work outside. So many people were stuck working from home inside. Um, so I, I just, I'm so grateful that that worked out the way it did. But um, yeah, there were a lot of people impacted. And San Diego Zoo um, and you know the Safari Park and just our entire entity, uh has the largest donor base of any zoo in the world so really in terms of just cash flow and overhead expenses being covered due to donations and our donor base and our endowment we were set up much better than most zoos and aquariums there were some zoos and aquariums that closed permanently that will not be reopening that had to find new happened? homes for their animals. Say, what, do, what do they and, do you know, with the animals? Yeah. So they get relocated to so other facilities. How many facilities. more animals
0: did San Diego get? <laughs> <of this.
1: laughs> well, luckily most, most Susan aquariums, at least I can speak for accredited organizations, were able to uh, apply for state aid and things like that to stay afloat and they were able to feed their animals, but they had a lot of staff cutbacks. We didn't see that kind of staff cutbacks, even with, um, zookeepers. So as a result, you know, you had zookeepers who were just working double, you know, they, they were doing double the work. They were not getting double the pay. And so a lot of the, you know, excellent animal care practices that you aspire to, you just can't accomplish that in a day because you're taking care of twice as many mouths. So, um, if if you have the ability to donate to your local zoo, um, now's the time because they're definitely hurting and they're trying to recoup a lot of those costs and um, those animals are kind of in a precarious spot, you know? So the more that you can do to whether it's just buying a membership now and you know, hoping that later on in the year you'll be able to go more frequently, that's a great option. I, I always say if you have friends with kids, buy them a zoo membership to their local zoo because that's a fun activity that they can continue to do throughout the year instead of some toy that they might play with for like a few days and then they forget about, so.
0: Yeah, and if you do have kids, the annual membership like you go like five times and it pays for itself, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like, it's
1: actually I think probably only two times yeah. at least at the San Diego Zoo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's it's something that you recoup the costs really quickly. Yeah.
0: Um, so you, one question that popped into my head that I don't know, now I just want to know, um, uh, <clears throat> is like, are they are we feeding like lions like cows? Just like are they like. Good question.
1: Where does that meat come from? Yeah. Yeah, we get rabbits, we get in mice, we get in rats. Um, All of these animals are um, just like human food supply chain are um, created kind of in a industrial situation. Um, Sometimes it's like a lab, um, sometimes it's a farm um, and they're humanely euthanized based off of our USDA practices. Um, and then they come to us frozen and then they go through a thaw process that we um, feed to our animals. So um, we try to vary it up for our carnivores because they often would eat a varied diet in the wild. So sometimes they'll get lamb carcasses, sometimes um, they'll get live insects or live trout. Um, We also stock some of our pools with tilapia like our jaguar pool has tilapia in it or at least it did. Um, So that's the only thing that we feed out live prey to other than that uh, like if we're doing uh, like a ground meat it's either um, it sometimes can be beef sometimes it can be horse um, so yeah we those are different um, species that we do feed out to our animals
0: it's gotta be so weird for like a lion who like needs to hunt stock and then like you're just throwing like a quarter of a
1: Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because we actually try to find ways for them to hunt for their food. So we will hide it in their exhibit. We will get it up high into a tree area that they have to climb up to find. We'll attach a lot of these um, carcasses to bungee cords, um, but they're covered in, like, fire hose so they can't hurt themselves on it. And they have to tug really hard on this because there's a big kind of, like, metal bolt that will go through a tendon in the carcass that's hard to rip so the animal actually has to fight for its food because we want them to engage as many of those hunting muscles as possible we want them to fight for their food so um that's not
0: having like a live critter yeah it's like massively different it is
1: it is different um but that gets at the whole ethics of i mean is it ethical to feed out like a live goat to a lion you know what i mean I think a lot of Americans would have a really hard time watching that, even though that's what happens in real life. I mean, you watch these nature documentaries, and a lot of them don't even really show the full kill and eating the animal because it's half alive and kicking as you know this yeah, carnivore what, um, is eating. Its have you entrails. heard of
0: the? Uh, yeah. Have you heard of the Instagram handle Nature Is Metal? Yes. Yeah, my brother just showed me that literally yesterday. But yeah, like, I mean, there is. So many different avenues of what I just wanted to ask right now, but like, <laughs> yeah. and I also need to circle back to the cuttlefish as well. Sure. Um, but um, the, I mean, I feel like there's like a, a such a massive disconnect. I mean, like even like mm-hmm. hum, if we're talking humane, I mean, like look how humans are living now right. of ten thousand years of exe- essentially captivity and breeding yeah. and whatnot of called society. Mm-hmm. But um.
1: And like, all the health issues that oh we've developed God, because yeah. of it. And yes. yeah, there are a lot of pluses and minuses to how humans have evolved. For yeah.
0: Sure. But like, we are so far disconnected from our food sources and. Yeah like understanding quality food um and also
1: just you know the welfare of how it arrives at your dinner plate and that's done on purpose you know what i mean so you go to the grocery store and you pick up a steak and it's neatly wrapped it's not bleeding that much you know and it's you know in its cellophane on a little piece of foam right so you're picking up your steak it's a item physical item but this is part of a muscle that's part of Most people don't even an know animal, what part
0: of the animal it's coming from. It's cut from, yeah. exactly.
1: So I, I encourage everyone to, you know, meet their local farmers at their local farmer's market, join CSAs, like support your local food sources if you can, um, or find ways that it's um, produced sustainably. That being said, that can be expensive. It is more expensive than just going to the grocery store. So there are barriers to entry for certain demographics.
0: Yeah. We're companies are externalizing their costs to the environment and um i'm not going to get more sidetracked by bringing (laughs) up something else um so the one thing that i wanted to talk about and kind of going back to a point we talked about a little while ago was the hierarchy of like creatures and just the other day um the a cuttlefish passed air quote passed the marshmallow test. Yeah. I'm guessing you've read this article. Or? I haven't read the article, but I'm oh, okay. familiar
1: with the marshmallow test. And, um, I have you watched my octopus teacher on yeah. Netflix?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm only laughing. Cause, um, if you haven't watched it, it's a very compelling story where you actually see how intelligent, like this octopus is, this person yeah. goes and visits the octopus for the entire year and creates a documentary on it. And yeah. like, I had cooked some octopus (laughs) and someone, like a couple of people asked me if I'd seen the octopus teacher. And I was like, yeah, but my octopus is still delicious. Um, So like, I get it. Like, yes, it's it's extremely smart, but like pigs are also as smart as dogs. And like, we have no problem eating pork, but like.
1: Yeah. And then raising them in very. I would argue inhumane situations. You know, yeah. It's very industrialized. They're in small little metal cages yeah. and that's what we do to produce the majority of our pork. But the flip side is they're not taking up a ton of pasture space. You don't have to worry about parasites and those parasites potentially being passed on humans because they're not living on soil where a lot of these parasites live and these animals pick it up. So, you would, if you talk to someone who worked into, in the industrial farming area, they would say, well, we're actually producing more food using less land space. We're actually not destroying the environment. We're trying to protect it. We're sp- trying to feed as many people as possible by using as little resources as possible to keep the food um, production quick and also um, healthy and safe in terms of parasites and things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of concerns and issues and about all of that, but yeah. Um, that might be a different different conversation, different day, but um we'll yeah. stick yeah, stick, stick to the zoos and stick to. <laughs> yes, we could easily go down the environmental realm a little bit more, but yeah, um, just
1: food supply chain, it's crazy. Yeah,
0: Um so just going into like, because I want to know, talk to someone who deals with animals on yeah. a day to day basis. Yeah. So if you don't know what the marshmallow test is, it essentially is like. You, you're put into a room and you're told that here's a marshmallow and if you don't eat it, we'll, uh, we'll give you two marshmallows in like 15 minutes mm-hmm. kind of thing. Or they don't tell you how long it's going to be and then like the scientist steps out of the room and then watches you and sees how long you can wait mm-hmm. kind of thing. And if you do wait, then you give you more. So whatever. If you mm-hmm. don't like marshmallows, you know, yeah. put in, substitute for whatever else yeah. Um, you Yeah, whatever's motivating for exactly. you. Exactly. So whatever's motivating. Exactly. And so um, that this cuttlefish and if you don't know what a cuttlefish is it is essentially like a squid with like flappy wings around the entire like head of the squid Mm -hmm. and they're incredibly crazy intelligent and they can change colors they can communicate with like different patterns on their skins and electrical impulses and all kinds of crazy stuff um and, and the they're fact, in
1: the same family as octopus, just yes. so you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's just like we've been judging animals upon our own personal intelligence in yeah. compared to like what their intelligence right. are. And
1: we think of like going back to the idea of megafauna and mammals, just because we're mammals and we think we're the superior species, we tend to place that on other mammals. And then birds and reptiles and insects and invertebrates like your cuttlefish are considered lesser quote-unquote creatures, less evolved, less intelligent. Yeah. Um, and and of course, we define intelligence based off of what we know intelligence to be. So inherently, it's completely anthropomorphic, right? So yeah. it's all human-based Massively and biased. Flawed. So, yeah. which circles back to this species, it's an invertebrate. So it's also cold-blooded, lives in the ocean. It um, only lives for between, you know, one to three years typically these uh animals that are in the octopus family so when you're dealing with a cephalopod like a cuttlefish what do you do with an animal that that's that smart you know what kind of protections do you give it what kind of tests do you give it like how do you define what is humane and not humane for this animal um and this all kind of circles back to what what is good animal welfare for animals and human care and how are we going to steward this planet and there's no quick easy fast rule for that
0: no and we're doing a terrible job at
1: it <laughs> we are i mean last time we talked we talked about the sixth mass extinction you know it's just like every second you know we're Losing a species, losing stuff. you know, and it, it's it's like a house of cards or like playing the game Jenga. It's like, yeah, you can pull out so many blocks, but then eventually it's going to come crumbling down. And a lot of people talk about, you know, climate change as this somewhat distant problem that's going to affect future generations vastly. And we got to act now to protect the future generations. Well, I think a lot of people would argue it's affecting us now. You look at what happened in Texas and the complete failure of their grid system and their water infrastructure due to extreme cold weather. You know, it's just really sad, you know, how many people were just totally affected by that in really horrible way and you know at first it was funny to joke about it's like oh texans you know they're so tough and they think they're so independent and here they are and they can't handle the snow
0: yeah coming from wisconsin and new hampshire new hampshire where it's like what (laughs) two inches of snow and like a little bit of cold like and it destroyed a whole like state like come on now yeah but if your infrastructure isn't there and and, yeah yeah
1: so i think I think it's a good argument for connecting our grid system. A lot of people might think that's dangerous, but if it was better connected and we didn't have different companies running different things in different states, not that they couldn't still operate as separate entities, but if we connected our grid system, then the solar excess that was produced in California or in Florida could have been sent to Texas, right? Um, And so unfortunately, that's just not where we're at with our, our infrastructure. So Hopefully, that'll be a lesson for us. Hopefully, that's something that we can pour some money into in terms of tax dollars for improving this infrastructure, you know?
0: Well, the problem is, is just like anything else, like people don't want change because they're making money off of the way the system is built right now. Yeah. So like, why would you change something if you're raking it in hand over fist right, right. now? Like, right. But if you've
1: demonstrated that it's not working, you know. True, true. You know, if there is major flaws and issues with it and it's not setting us up to succeed, then we got a a real problem on our hands.
0: But there was a guy who, a military retired person who um, signed up for time of use charges Mm -hmm. in Texas before all this hit, and then he got a $17,000 utility bill Mm -hmm. for the month because of the power outage and you know all this stuff because like the time of use it was like massively high demand so like the power companies are still making their money just because it doesn't work doesn't mean they're not making their money so why would they again why would they change something they probably made more money yeah yeah well people have
1: to hold those companies accountable like they, they just do in terms of elected officials or whatever it is and that's kind of where like the rubber meets the road you know it's like You gotta follow the money, right? They always say that, you know? And I would say that as long as we as a society are solely basing happiness, welfare, and, you know, success off of money and profit, we are going to continue to fail and fail ourselves. Um, not to say that it shouldn't be taken into account. It should. I'm not saying that we should live in this utopian world with no competition and no money and blah, blah, blah. No, competition is great. I, I fully support that. We see that with natural selection. I think that's wonderful. But I, at the same time, like, you can't only put profit first. You just can't.
0: Yeah. Because then you externalize all of the co- actual true costs. Yeah. So your steak costs, you know, six dollars a pound, but mm-hmm. it's fed with corn mm-hmm. and it's pumped full of hormones and they right. pump it full of steroids so that cow goes from a calf to a cow as fast as humanly possible, possible. Yep. on the least amount of land. And they, they you yep. know, like how much, you know.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's it comes down to value it. systems. Yeah. You know, it's just like. What do we value and why? And, and we're going to have to get really real with ourselves. So everyone talks about getting back to normal post-COVID and if that normal will ever really exist and how we're going to move forward, you know? So that, the, these are big questions we have to ask ourselves and, and figure out if we're going to live somewhat happily and healthily all together.
0: So let's kind of play that little parallel right now of, all right, so you've been helping animals in... Nice cages, but you know, in <laughs> captivities, in human and hu- care, yeah. yeah, and and humans have now been living in much more confined captivity for a while. But like, so I mean, let's say you have where are most? We'll start with one quick question. Uh, where are most of the animals like coming from? Like, if you have an, a lion and in, in the San Diego Zoo, like it wasn't like captured in Africa and brought over. No,
1: not at all. Um, so for the most part, most animals. In accredited zoos and aquariums are born in accredited zoos and aquariums now this has been going on the San Diego Zoo has existed for over a hundred years you know so it would be naive though to say that these animals didn't eventually at some point their origins do date back to the wild obviously they didn't just spontaneously appear in human care so um, yes uh, the origins of All species in human care whether it be you know domesticated animals or um, wild animals they are originally from the wild but the majority of animals um, in human care have been propagated in human care
0: so then you're probably so the the question that I was like hoping to get is like maybe one animal was brought over from the wild and sure so
1: like our herd of elephants at the Safari Park they are from, um, I believe, Swaziland, and they were slated to be culled because they were in a natural preserve or wildlife park that basically is fenced in and only has a certain amount of space for elephants. And if there are too many elephants in an area, they will become destructive of the overall ecosystem. Too many trees will get pushed over and consumed, and um, just the plant matter, just there won't be enough of it to support the herd. So. They said, you know, we either have to relocate these animals or they will be killed because our land just can't continue to support them anymore. So um, the Safari Park agreed to take in um, one of the herds, and that's how we acquired our African herd.
0: So then, this is a good example because you actually do take care of elephants Mm -hmm. then, like... Have you, like, observed elephants in the wild before? Like, have you gone and, like, watched their natural habitats and patterns? And then, like, how much does it change when they're all of a sudden in San Diego now? Yeah. And, like, a different space, different environment. Like,
1: Right. So when we're looking at animal welfare and animal care, we want to make sure that we can measure it. So we want to make sure that we have good data to compare animals in the wild and animals in human care. So um, for instance, uh, we are polar bears. We ended up putting like Fitbits on our polar bears so that we could see what their activity was like um, when they were swimming and walking and running. So then that data could be extrapolated and those collars could be put on wild bears so they could look at their activity patterns and see how they change over time with global climate change. So are these bears swimming for longer? Are they swimming for resting for longer um, how are they adjusting to their environment just radically changing over time so that's a great collaboration project so with the elephants well that's
0: a strange one because polar bears live where it's really really cold and Uh san diego it never gets really really cold
1: right so we yeah we just celebrated international polar bear day and we actually um trucked in a lot of snow and covered their entire habitat with snow which they really enjoyed but that's a valid question so like Their pool is chilled, um, but believe it or not, if their pool gets too cold, they don't want to get in the water.
0: Well, yeah, because they're skinny (laughs) as shit now. They don't have a ton of fat on them anymore. They're also, they acclimated. Yeah, they
1: have totally acclimated. They um, don't have the same blubber layer that wild bears do because they don't need it. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's not as cold here in San Diego. So their diet is different too. We can't acquire seals to feed out to- Why not? Polar There's days. a shit tunnel
0: over here. <laughs> <laughs> we have
1: sea lions and we have harbor seals, right? Um, due to the Marine Mammal Protection Act actually in the US, um, you cannot kill marine mammals. They're all protected.
0: We can't like grab a couple of them. No,
1: or... we're not sneaking any of them in, Greg. Come on. Nice try. C- SeaWorld's <laughs>
0: over there trying to save a couple here and there. You guys can't like just accidentally pick right. up a couple and right. know, chuck them in the pool.
1: No, we can't. But we do. <laughs> we try really hard to recreate toys uh, like... Um, just round circular toys that kind of resemble the shape of seals so that these bears can push and pounce on these animals in the water out of the water so those are all natural history behaviors for the bears that we try and recreate for them but is it the exact same as living in the arctic no it's not it's not they they in some ways it's great because they don't have to worry about starving to death they don't have to worry about potentially being you know killed by another bear that's competing for its territory you know everyone thinks of the wild as being this ideal beautiful place where all animals live in harmony with their environment but you just reference nature's metal right that instagram page that is brutal you you get to watch the brutal realities of being in the wild and what it's like to be hunted or be the one hunting
0: i feel like that's like i mean with disney and like just like anthropomorphizing all creatures right. so that like I don't think anybody most unless you are like an avid outdoors person, hunter, or any person who actually right. spends a lot of time in the wild, like most people have no idea what the wild actually is it's because sad, there really true. isn't much wild left. Nope.
1: Exactly. Um
0: but kind of like let's circle back to the original question and kind of mm-hmm. go into the African herd. Like yeah. Do you see, like, an emotional shift of them? Because, like, they were actually in Africa. Yes, it was a a captivity, but probably a lot more space than they have right now. Like, Mm -hmm. did the herd, like, did you see, like, an emotional shift in them? Yeah, so
1: in terms of elephants and emotions, man, there are books written on that. That's very complex. Yeah. uh, they walk past wander. their
0: graves of like their yeah. old their ancestors and relatives, and they like mourn and hang out with them and
1: yeah, they spend time with these elephant bones, and th- there's no there's no um evolutionary sort of advantage or reason that they would hang out with the bones of past elephants other than they have some sort of emotional connection with that and they're there to whether it be pay their respects or whatever it is i can't speak on behalf of the elephants i can guess due to my own you know emotional state but It's hard to analyze, but we do nonetheless try to analyze. So things that can be indicative of a stressed elephant, an elephant that isn't eating for normal amounts of time and an elephant that isn't sleeping. So they will actually lay down and sleep at night and we do monitor their sleep closely, um, their water consumption, um, whether or not they feel comfortable playing, playing with each other, playing with objects in their environment. Do they, um, spend time interacting with each other appropriately, meaning touching each other, rubbing up against each other, um, chasing each other in a playful way. Um, Other things that you can look at, um, sometimes elephants can be prone to stereotypies. So standing in one spot and swaying back and forth, or you might see big cats pacing in a zoo. Um, those are things that can be indicative of stress. They can also be indicative of anticipatory events. So sometimes our elephants, not all of them, but on occasion, they will sway right before they know it's feeding time because they get excited and they're waiting for us to come up to, you know, wherever it is that we are going to shift them into a, a, a separate space because due to safety reasons, we never go in with the elephants. So they, they go into like, a stationing area or a waiting I describe it as kind of like a waiting room so that we can then go into their main yards and clean and put out as much hay and produce and other fun items for them we will cut large limbs down from trees so they can spend time stripping leaves off of trees and bark that's what they would be doing in the wild the vast majority of an elephant's day is spent eating because they eat only plant material they have these huge bodies so it takes a lot of time to eat and digest all of that plant material. So um, we look at those activity budgets of what they were doing in the wild and compare them to the activity budget of what they're doing in our care. And if it mimics it, if it is similar, then we know that we're close to getting to where we should be for their overall welfare. Now an elephant could be eating and stressed the same time, um, but typically you can look at things like stool quality. They also have these uh, temp temporal glands that sweat. It kind of looks like they're crying, but it's not actually tears coming from their eyes. It's um, basically like a sweat gland that um, is secreting a um, bodily fluid, kind of like sweat, um, that they'll do sometimes when they're excited and happy. Sometimes uh, that'll happen like right before an elephant uh, breeds. Um, So there are lots of reasons why that gland might become activated. So you can't just say that only when an elephant's temporal glands are going that they're stressed and unhappy because that's not the case. It's kind of like a dog barking. A dog can bark when they're excited and happy. A dog can bark when it's fearful. So there are a lot of pieces that you have to put together to figure out and see the whole picture.
0: But then did you notice any differences? Like were you like hanging out with like Bobo the elephant? And you're like, wow, Bobo's like off. Like, can you like, when you look into the eye of the elephant, like, yeah, can you yeah. see like, mm-hmm. it, like, like if I were to look you in the eye and like right. you're having a bad emotional day, like, right. your makeup could be fine, your, eye, <laughs> your, your eyes don't need to be puffy or right. anything like that. Like, yeah. no, there's no like external indicators of you having like a terrible day but like i can just kind of look you in the eye and go like yo gabby what's wrong
1: i know yeah so (laughs) with the i can't tell you about the exact event of the elephants when they moved from africa Mm -hmm. to the safari park because i wasn't there um that was a Quite a few years before I started at the San Diego Zoo, but I've talked to the keepers that were there, and it was actually the transition went really well. And when you look at their activity budgets, they were very similar. They were playing, they were feeling comfortable enough to get into their pools and explore things and eat. Of course, it is vastly different. You know, they're going to be around humans, and just in terms of physical proximity, a lot more than what they were used to. But they. Um, did really well. Um, The transition is we didn't see any stereotypies as far as I know in terms of the elephant swaying things like that so it worked and went really well. But anytime you embark on an endeavor like that, you never quite know how it's going to go. Right. You know, it is a risk anytime that you are working with wild animals and you're trying to recreate things as well as you could, there are things that can go wrong and that is part of just the field in general. And, and yeah. we do it as a labor of love. Like we wouldn't do this just simply for profit and entertainment. We do this because we're worried about them in the wild. We want to have, this basically like Noah's Ark of animals should things go wrong in the wild. And then, you know, if something does go wrong, we can breed them and hopefully re-release them into the wild. If there's a space to re-release them too.
0: Okay. So then like kind of going back of like, let's say polar bears. Sure. For an example, but we'll stick with elephants just because like you're more of an elephant expert than polar bears. But, um, you know, like, okay, so this herd came from africa but were in captivity they were in a giant pen or whatever but like you know okay it was a
1: nature preserve i don't know exactly the size, size of, of it, the fenced in yeah. preserve but yes
0: so probably more natural than what they are in now here in san diego potentially yeah potentially yeah so but like let's say that you know you know like the white rhino just re- was the white rhino right
1: northern white rhino just went extinct.
0: recently yeah. went extinct right yeah. so let's say if we did have like 12 white rhinos or whatever in the Mm -hmm. San Diego Zoo and they're like yo we gotta bring them back over there but like Susie the white rhino is like 12th generation San Diego white rhino and Uh like knows nothing of like getting chased down by a lion or whatever like what really are the odds that like this white rhino who like for families of generations essentially being domesticated being like re-plopped out into the wild like is gonna survive we just did that
1: with Eric our black rhino he went back to Africa He was born and raised um, in the San Diego Safari Park, and he went over to a um, nature preserve in Africa. I can't remember the exact location, but um, he was monitored in kind of more of a, a smaller fenced in area than where he was going to eventually go. But mind you, he wasn't used to the insects. He wasn't used to the plant material. He didn't have the gut biodiversity that those black rhinos that live over there do. So that process is a very long, slow process. So they slowly introduced him to the native plant material. They slowly introduced him to another female black rhino that was kind of going to be his guide to help kind of show him what was what. Um, But they wouldn't move forward in moving him on to the next step of that reintroduction program if he wasn't ready. So things that indicate whether or not a rhino is ready, I mean, you're going to look at stool quality, you're going to take blood samples, you're going to um, look at his overall activity budget as it compares to the ones in the wild. Um, They're going to look for his stress, you know, is he sleeping? Is he not? Does he seem calm and happy? Does he seem like other wild black rhinos or is he, you know, just, on edge and flinchy successful um so it's still in the middle of the process okay. i don't know where they're at in it i do believe he has been introduced to that female black rhino and he's in a more uh, a larger preserve area um but i don't know how it's going
0: okay so like not to downgrade rhinos because they have their own troubles and just, you know... But, like, Mm -hmm. they're not hunting another animal. They're they're eating some grass and plants and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they're badass because other things are trying to eat them. Mm -hmm. So, like, let's say we take a you know polar bear okay. for example especially yeah. one that say you probably wouldn't take one from san diego zoo because no. it would definitely die yeah but no. maybe take one a little less extreme and let's say mm-hmm. it's from the chicago zoo or something like that where okay. like it's colder or longer and yeah. whatever right so then like if that polar bear has never actually like hunted a wild seal or knows yeah. the land and the territory and understands like the different thicknesses of ice and all the different things, ins and outs of being like an Arctic polar bear. Like, and you just go, all right, cool. We'll stick them up there. Kind of thing. Like,
1: yeah, that would not be humane for the animal. They tried to do that with Keiko the killer whale. Do you remember from free Willy? He was at a park down in, uh, Mexico and then he was brought up to, um, an aquarium on the Oregon coast, Oregon coast aquarium. Um, and he was taught how to hunt live fish. And then they took him out over to Iceland, where he was originally from. And they tried to reintroduce him. And this was a lot of animal rights activists who really pushed for it. This sadly, this um, Keiko was um, not socialized well with other killer whales. So yeah, he didn't know how to socially interact with other wild pods of killer whales so what ended up happening it was really sad he had some rough encounters with local um killer whales um you know they did allow him to just swim freely throughout the Atlantic Um, he ended up kind of in a really sickly state over off the coast of Norway kind of begging for food and interaction with humans because he was so imprinted on people and and whatnot even though he could potentially hunt for food on his own but he did um, acquire some sort of disease from either a parasite or the water in the North Atlantic and then getting pneumonia and having a very slow, sad, painful death. So that is a a word for caution. A lot of animal rights activists are like, we should reintroduce all of these animals into the wild. And most mammals, particularly large carnivores, are not good candidates for re-release for those reasons. Now, that being said, it can be done. You look at the giant panda, even though they do eat uh, bamboo. Um, they aren't hunters, but they originally were carnivores. If you look at the evolution of pandas, it's un- unusual because they went from being um, herbivores to carnivores, like most bears, back to being an herbivore, which is the only bear species that does that. So, anyway, pandas still have to de- defend themselves from leopards and other animals that are in their habitat in China. So, they tried to re release this male panda who they thought was a good candidate. And he ended up, um, having bad encounters with other pandas. You know, they have to defend their own territory. And I believe he also had a bad encounter with a leopard. So they figured out that only the most feisty and aggressive pandas were candidates for re-release. And it was a slow process. Um, and then once those pandas were re-released, then they um bred with other local pandas and had their own you know offspring and it it was a success helped
0: repopulate the area
1: exactly so uh, the giant panda is a great example of an animal that with the collaboration of the san diego zoo and other species or sorry other zoos and locations um they actually took the panda off the endangered species list it's now listed as threatened instead of endangered
0: didn't china take all their pandas back
1: from the zoo yeah from the san diego zoo at the moment the only facilities in the u.s that have them right now are uh, memphis zoo zoo atlanta and then the national zoo in dc
0: china's just like yeah we don't want those ones they're like
1: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know the logistics of the ins and outs of it you do have a contract for every panda that is um, abroad in other facilities around the world, with China, China owns all pandas, so um, once your contract is up, if they the you know china doesn 't want to renew it with you they don 't have to so i 'm not sure exactly what happened in terms of the logistics of contracts and paperwork and the cost, but it yeah. is millions of dollars to um, have pandas at your facility so um, I don't know if just the logistics, since they're no longer considered endangered, if it makes sense to be paying China millions of dollars to have pandas, you know? So like, they are pan- iconic. Like,
0: they literally have, like, the patent on pandas kind of thing.
1: Yeah, if you want to describe it that way, I guess that's one way you could look at it, <laughs> for sure. Cause like, the... if,
0: like, okay, because, like, breeding pandas was always, like, a big issue, and then right. we, like, we nailed it in San Diego. <laughs> um, but, like, okay, so, like... But that panda was born in America. Yeah, (laughs) technically
1: it was, but it is not. In American rules, that is
0: an American panda.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wish it worked that way. But due to the contracts, it literally says if it is born, it is still our property. And it's interesting because other zoos will make up those agreements with other zoos as well. Like a zoo could own a Maine wolf, and then due to breeding uh, recommendations, that Maine wolf um, may have to move to another zoo for breeding but the actual institution that owns that main wolf that loaned it out to another facility for breeding has uh, right. reproductive rights on the offspring of that animal. And then what they'll often agree to is like the first, you know, animal that's born the goes to the original, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then the, uh, the second born goes to the facility that it's at. So there are all these interesting negotiations because technically it's illegal to kind of buy and sell exotic wildlife you know so unless zoos, you're in texas. yeah unless you're in texas um you you have to add accredited zoos and aquariums it's basically like a bartering system in a lot of ways like mm-hmm. we'll send you five of our penguins if we could get 10 of your trout you know it just depends on what the the zoo is trying to develop in terms of their their actual displays. displays yeah
0: um Okay, so animal bartering and rights to the animals is mm-hmm. how zoos are replenishing their supplies of animals. It's kind of
1: coordinating <laughs> things. Yeah, it's really tricky because one of the major logistics of running a zoo or aquarium is that you have limited space. So you 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 could potentially propagate lots of species yeah if you have like a really
0: really like you know um high producing like let's say let's go to penguins right okay. you got some real you know you know, uh, i'm thinking why well, it starts with a v either way, i'm thinking the word but either way they're they're very good at producing babies okay. um like what do you do when they have like you know way too many babies and like so then yeah. you like start talking to other zoos of like, yo, Bob's killing it right now and he's <laughs> pumping out the chicks like crazy. Like,
1: uh, so there are a few things you can do. So uh, zoos and crayons manage populations often um, by either if they have, depending on the species and how they breed. So for instance, with elephants, you're going to have a herd of females and one male, the bull male that's going to be breeding with the group or tolerated in the group during breeding um, time, so, tolerated, tolerated. In the yeah, garden, exactly, yeah. The, the ladies are very particular, um, whereas with penguins, they kind of breed for life, you know, so you have a pair that's going to stick together, yeah. and that's what they're going to do, um, so sometimes when you have young chicks, and you know that you have already very healthy, um, high-producing pairs of penguins, you might keep a bachelor group of male penguins where you have all the males together so that they can't breed and then you have all the young females together so that they can't breed they hang out with each other and then when you need to add more breeding individuals to your colony you can do that
0: you just have like the dating game and yeah you just kind of like open up both cages at the same time and just <laughs> like
1: yeah. see
0: what happens
1: yeah it is it's very interesting <laughs> because sometimes even though there might be a really good genetic match due to, you know, the research scientists are saying this male needs to breed with this female. They don't always get along in terms of personality. So sometimes you have to play matchmaker literally where you're like, okay, you didn't like Bob, let's meet um, Jose, you know? So it's, it's tricky. There was a really cool study. I believe it was with wallabies where they let the female wallabies smell the scats of male wallabies. And they, they kind normally, of select They it. normally do this. They, they that's, normally... Part of,
0: that's part of their breeding selections, right?
1: <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know, oh, actually. Okay. But I think this is one way they were trying to figure out how can we, without the males Speed and females seeing each other, how can we let them select who they want to breed with? And mm. when we let them do that, are they picking the best genetic option for... The species as a whole. And at least with this example, it was like this wallaby actually, the females were picking good matches, and because they were kind of indirectly self selecting the male, the behavior actually was very smooth, and they didn't have any issues with fighting or, you know, females not interested or males not interested. So, um, you know, these animals know, you know, and if the more we can do to help them make choices on their own, the better off will probably be. But it's not always that easy or simple because when you're moving something like a polar bear for breeding or an elephant for breeding, there's a lot of logistics involved and a lot of space and a lot of coordination of resources. So, you know, everyone tries to do what's best for both the species and the individuals. It's just sometimes it just doesn't go as seamlessly as planned.
0: Yeah. So let's kind of go back to like zoos and COVID. And so San Diego is very, very lucky in the sense that it's warm all year round. We we have mm-hmm. outdoor facilities. So yeah. we're back open, you said? Yeah, at we
1: are back open.
0: Diminished or lessened capacity. capacity. Yeah. Um, so like what are we – we luckily have a good donor base and all that. But like mm-hmm. what what's – what is the zoo seeing, like, going forward? Like, what, what's going to be their issues? I mean, if, you know, like... Yeah. They've lost $10 million in revenue, we'll say, and they were counting right. on that to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. Like... Right. What, what's going on with the so zoos right some now? some
1: plans... I, I think most zoos can say they're in this boat. just future big re- renovation projects are put on hold. Um, luckily, we
0: didn't we just finish one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We
1: actually are in the process of just finishing up our brand new Children's Zoo. But all of that money had already been generated mm. and earmarked and so Wait, it was hold on. already Wait, our Children's there. Zoo. So yeah.
0: we just finished Africa, Africa Rocks, Rocks not yeah. too long ago. What's the Children's Zoo? So
1: the Children's Zoo they're completely redoing the Children's Zoo area that area has been closed for the past I want to say year and a half, two years. Um so right as kind of Africa Rocks opened they got ready to move on to the next project, so that's just the way it works. It kind of a, a decent clip actually, is when you're finishing up one project, you're already prepping and getting ready for the next renovation and project. So um, we're lucky in that we have the great coordination to be able to do that and fundraising, but. Um, Children's Zoo is redoing the area so that they will have like really fun immersive experiences for the kids. We're also redoing our Komodo dragon area and our hummingbird area so that's all going to be a cool new experience for people along with you know playgrounds for the kids and touch areas for the kids um, where they get to be up close with certain uh, animals where that they can interact and touch these animals and and talk to um, a lot of our great education staff about animals
0: how do you do you see things like interacting with animals not coming back or do you think it will come back i mean
1: yeah because, so of, because of covid covid um, and
0: all kind of like
1: <laughs> i think that we are placing a lot of hope on the vaccine and that once we get... Okay, yeah, immunity. but
0: like COVID here is this one, but like mm-hmm. we had SARS, we had MERS, like, and I don't think mm-hmm. people are really talking about that as much as it's all in the same damn family, it's yep. just a slight mutation. So like there is going to be another one. Like, mm-hmm. so, I mean, are we, are they, so they're hoping that like they'll be able to go back to like being able to interact with animals and all that kind of good yeah, stuff. Yeah,
1: I mean, we've done some, some species are going to be much more prone to picking up SARS or COVID or other respiratory diseases and viruses than others so that's all done very strategically through our veterinary department and making sure that we're doing what's best for both humans and the animals in fact um, we just rebranded today's World Wildlife Day and the San Diego Zoo has rebranded what Um, a great
0: day to do this interview I know right (laughs) it's like
1: perfect timing so Um, Our overarching organization used to be referred to as San Diego Zoo Global, and we've transitioned to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. So um, they kind of refer to the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Safari Park as like the two front doors of the organization. Um, But we also have our conservation science and wildlife health department, which is something that we had talked about how Wildlife health also impacts human health and vice versa, so our you know head of research science and veterinary department um, she 's a veterinarian and she often will get involved with a lot of policy making decisions on the national level as to where should we head as a nation in terms of looking at biodiversity and wildlife health and how that 's going to impact human health so, and what what we can do to mitigate. Um, some of these spillover events, like what potentially happened with pangolins and or bats. So um, I think it's a really cool moment in our organization because we're collaborating with so many different, uh, so many different entities that we normally probably wouldn't collaborate with directly, maybe indirectly, but.
0: Your hair's on the mic. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
1: Um, So yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting time to be live for sure in terms of how how we're going to approach wildlife and interact with it. So hopefully moving forward, we're gonna look at improving that relationship. But right now, like I said, with the Sixth Mass Extinction, we're not where we should be or where we wanna be.
0: Cool, so the last topic I wanna talk about is David Attenborough's documentary, mm-hmm. um, my incredible life or what is it do you know it off the top um, of head
1: um i saw it i don't know it off the top of my head but it was excellent it's definitely something everyone should watch we have greg here pulling uh, it up right now a
0: life to... on our planet there we there go, we go. <clears throat> yeah um yeah if you haven't seen it you need to watch it it definitely i don't care about your political leaning or anything like that like it it definitely goes into climate change and like what we've done to like destroy it but it's it's through the lens of a guy that Mm -hmm. in the story it'll tell it best but like he was sometimes the first uh non-native person to go into a lot of these areas because he worked for national geographic and like he was born at a perfect time to be an environmentalist in that sense of like he got on airplanes when airplanes first became available, and like went yeah. to the Congo, went to you know Borneo, went to Papua New Guinea, like all these places. Yeah. Like the first time, like a scientist and you know a journalist, like were to show up at these areas, and so he's watched firsthand and what he's ninety something years old now. Say
1: he's ninety eight years old. Yeah, um, yeah, he's seen it all uh, for sure. And
0: watched it literally change. Yeah. In his lifetime. In
1: his lifetime, right in front of his eyes.
0: Which I think Um, is like the hard part of like most people because like, you know, if you're born in 2021, like your understanding of nature and what's normal is that baseline there. mm -hmm. But if you were born in 1821, 200 years before, like your understanding of nature is was massively different and your baselines. Like it's always, unfortunately, getting worse of what you think is normal. Right so like but that
1: being said there are spots of hope like i had mentioned how we have taken the giant pandas off the endangered species list like i do think that if we change our day-to-day practices and i think that's one message to really impress upon people is that your actions do count they do matter whether it's voting for you know certain legislation or it's recycling or maybe just producing less waste in general or composting, whatever it is, every little bit helps. No one's gonna be perfect at everything all the time. So I wouldn't beat yourself up about that, but at the same time, just taking the time to think about how your day-to-day life impacts your overall environment, your community, um, both humans and animals, because the more that I think we can lift each other up and everything in our surrounding environment, the better place we're gonna be in. Um, I I think one thing that, that was impressed upon me recently with our rebranding is our vision changed quite a bit. So our vision at the San Diego zoo um, or San Diego zoo global was to lead the fight against extinction. So in some ways that, that frames it in like you're putting more emphasis on extinction instead of life thriving. You're having to fight instead of, you know, collaborating. Whereas our new vision is a world where all life thrives. So, It's also taking into account that, you know, a lot of these animals won't be able to thrive if we aren't also taking into account the local humans that coexist with that local wildlife as well. So um, we need to find a way where we can all thrive. um, And that doesn't mean that just because you're focused on wildlife that you can't also be focused on humans and vice versa.
0: Yeah. Do you know who John John Florence is at all I don't okay cool uh he's a surfer um he's the two-time world champion but um he when he hurt himself he blew his knee out and couldn't compete for like a year mm. and um living my dream life and uh, probably a lot <laughs> of people's dream lives of being a professional athlete and whatever um but uh he created a four-part series called vela which is the Mm. name of his boat but he sailed from like hawaii to a bunch of different south pacific islands and um Mm. they went and visited um one of the islands that during world war ii we were like testing nuclear bombs on and like Mm. blowing the shit up out of this place and so i forget exactly what island i was trying to google it oh uh palmyra okay is the island name but in, like, World War Two area, we we decimated it. It completely, like, turned it from a beautiful jungle to, like, nothing. Leveled, Leveled it yeah. completely. Um, killed almost everything on it. Yeah. And then, like, it was used as, like, a scientific experiment, essentially, mm-hmm. to, like, can we bring this back to life? Right. And so it's, I, I think it's owned by, like, the U.S. government or something yep. like that. And, um, but in the time since like absolutely devastating it to today right. um they have like reintroduced um native trees reintroduced na- like some native um and was plants this done and...
1: purposely by humans or just naturally nature was doing it on its own
0: uh it was curated by humans but okay. like obviously nature at one point like started taking over
1: right right okay
0: um But, yes, like, so scientists and, you know, people started, like, kick-started it by, like, planting the trees, bringing some things in. Right. And then it just, like, started taking off. And after, I don't know how many years or whatever, but, like, the native pop, like, birds started showing up. When birds started showing up, like, they would, you know, poop out seeds. And, like, now new plants would show up. And, like, and so it just went from, like... Going to like now you go to it and like the reefs are some of the best reefs in the world and like the plants and vegetation is like super, super healthy and it bounced back like very, very well. Mm. But that's also an island in the middle of the South Pacific where like the only people in the world who go to this Mm -hmm. are scientists. And somehow John John Florence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Random
1: people with sailboats. <laughs> and,
0: a, you know, a uh, big audience to bring money and awareness to things. Right. Yes, there right. are benefits that you can do when you are a famous person. Right. Um, or zoos or other things, right? So, right. Um, But, like, uh, the, like, L.A., when the... COVID hit and the f- smog and, and pollution like dropped dramatically. And you could actually like see across the Los Angeles like Valley or whatever you could mm-hmm. see across the Valley, like um, the, the f- less flying of planes, less car travel and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like nature people were seeing like a resurgence
1: mm-hmm.
0: of um, life. And also in um, David Attenborough's movie, like they go to Chernobyl,
1: Yeah, Chernobyl is a great example. I was just going to say, it's very similar. You know, they have that nuclear program. They had a meltdown out there in uh, Ukraine. in the what was the 80s?
0: I think it was like like 86 or something like that. Yeah,
1: and so they have a remarkable wildlife that's come back there from um, wolves and deer to fox and bears. It's really beautiful. Yeah.
0: Why do I know that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I, I think there is hope. I just, I think that people become complacent about these things just because they think it is so far off in the future that this meltdown is going to happen but it's happening now you know
0: so and like I, you are way more into this and like this is part of your life and the mission of the san diego zoo right. but in my opinion as like a lay person who also just loves the environment and yeah, loves being you're out, out in it seems like these success stories happen when it's like, yeah, no, sorry, no human be other human beings can come here. It's like mm-hmm. it has to be a natural, you know, disaster of like a
1: yeah.
0: you know, nuclear bomb going off essentially uh, um, to get
1: people to go away. To like yeah, yeah, to like
0: get people to completely go away, or like you know the the you know like Palmyra Island where it's like in the middle of nowhere, no human beings yeah. step foot on it unless you're a scientist, kind of right. thing. Like or you you see these. Um, or at least I do through Instagram and other things of like you know like Brazilian man bought you know 20 acres of land and 30 years later this is what it looks like kind of thing where it's like a private land brought Mm -hmm. back to like what it used to be like
1: So for wildlife to really thrive in these biodiversity-dense areas, whether it's coral reefs or rainforests, you do need large swaths of land for there to be a certain carrying capacity for that life to thrive. So I think that that is important. That's not to say that you can't visit them. I think our natural park system, I mean, that's a great example of how people can visit. There are there is some controversy, though, about how many people visit and have the impact and whether or not that should be regulated more. Um, but yes, it does take large pieces of land to preserve wildlife successfully. And so the more that we can encourage people to do that locally or internationally, the better off we are all going to be. We may still all reside in cities. I know that there are aspects of living in a city that I love, but I also need to be around nature. I think that they've even done studies on the mental health and welfare of people that, um, uh, that live in the city, those individuals that live near trees that have trees in their backyard or their courtyard are much happier and healthier individuals than people that just have cement and concrete. So I think there's a way to integrate nature into our daily lives and cities while not impacting these larger, larger wide swaths of land where people are um, impacting wildlife when ideally it would thrive and do better without us being there. But that being said, it, it's a collaboration. So it still takes people to, set aside that land to monitor it to care for it to make sure that people aren't going in there and illegally cutting trees down things like that so um, we still need to work together for it to happen
0: yeah i mean we're the only creature that has stepped out of the circle of life
1: i I would argue that we are still there though i would argue we're still there yeah but we just took a hard step out where now
0: it's not a circle anymore it's like a little like yeah you gotta loop the human back in but like we're the only creature who like negatively affects their landscape in such a dramatic way yeah Yeah. like yes beavers cut down trees and make dams but like nature evolves slowly to have that happen and like benefits come from like a beaver creating a dam where like we live in Southern California, which is absolutely amazing. But like, Mm -hmm. this is a desert. There shouldn't be this many, like Arizona
1: shouldn't exist. (laughs) Right. I know it is is totally different. I mean, you look at, uh, water usage and water rights. I mean, that is, that was the first thing that came to my mind when I moved to, San Diego was literally water. Is there enough water? Is well, it Well, see, here's the thing.
0: San Diego doesn't have to worry about it because we're an older city than Arizona, like Phoenix. Yeah. So our water rights in L.A. and San Diego to the Colorado River, mind you, mm-hmm. are so much stronger than, say, Scottsdale and Phoenix that, mm-hmm. like, essentially we would the the level of water that would have to get down to before like san diego would start diverting water to somewhere mm-hmm. like is like you couldn't exist like literally right. there'd be no water to arizona and san diego like wouldn't have to change any right. of their like water but my argument like would that.
1: be is we should be able to find ways to have water locally to sustain the population that's there so for instance la There's a huge aquifer under L.A. that could sustain the entire population of L.A. for the entire year, literally just based off of the groundwater. But but how fast does it
0: get replenished? Exactly. Where does it come from? And
1: it comes from our rain supply. We actually produce enough rain or we don't produce it. Nature produces enough rain for it to potentially replenish back into the ground. But what ends up happening is it hits the streets, goes into gutters, sewers, sewers and gutters and... and storm drains, and ends up in the ocean, yeah. instead of back into our aquifer. So there is plans, and I can't remember the exact statistics, to get like 30% of our rainwater recaptured back into the aquifer, which would help offset our actual demand from the Colorado River and other areas, um, which would be way more sustainable. But guess what? They they passed the funding for it in terms of figuring out ways to get the water back down into the aquifer how much of it has been actually implemented probably none like two percent has been implemented Wait, i know Instead you're not of a
0: geoscientist or anything like that but like how the fuck are they going to try to man-made put it into the aquifer are they just going to drill a hole into it and like fill it up like a funnel like yeah <laughs> so like... i don't
1: know the logistics about <laughs> it but it is it is something like that it's like where you have gravel and grass and cracks in the earth that allow this water to travel slowly through permeated ground back into the aquifer it's,
0: okay so at least doing it some semi- like yeah as nature would kind of do it
1: yeah, yeah yeah and i mean of course when you have water that's hitting the road where there's lots of oil and grease do you want that water running into your aquifer no you're going to want to find a way to filter it right so yeah. that's a whole nother thing so i don't know But, yeah, it's totally doable. I just feel like when it comes to water rights in living in the desert, it's totally unsustainable, and we have to find a way to make it sustainable. We have to find a way to have water supplies. Like, Arizona does get rain every year, so how are they capturing that rain to save Mm -hmm. it? You know what I mean? So, same thing with L.A. We have these, what do they call it, river um clouds or river storms that atmospheric river storms that dump a whole ton of rain in socal but we just don't save it we don't capture it
0: there's um uh it's like in africa or whatever but um there's it's like a almost like a a windmill but mm-hmm. it like collects moisture so whenever like it rains or like the humidity oh, goes cool. up higher like yeah. it's like these synthetic hairs or whatever on this like essentially like windmill looking thing huh. that gathers the water and then like collects it out of the air so there there's like a bunch <laughs> of really really smart scientists who are like working <laughs> on these things yeah uh yeah. it just seems that it's like it takes politicians and honestly unfortunately someone making money off of Mm -hmm. this to actually happen because we again externalize most of our costs so that we can live this air quote affordable life but we are our whole world is built off a linear never never uh, ever expanding never you know stopping the you know growth patterns so that you can keep making your quarterly dividends so your shareholders make money instead of living in a circular sustainable life um right i really want to try to end on like a positive note because like i know these conversations (laughs) can like i mean like go down negative routes and like,
1: well, I think like going back to one of the things that, you know, your the theme of your podcast is growing with Greg. Right. So like, it's like, what will you do next to achieve a state of happiness? Right. That's my question to you. You can't steal my questions. (laughs) Come
0: on. (laughs) So
1: like, no, I, no, I think it's a valid question. So like, what are we going to do? I I think it's really fascinating. This I've, I've been studying meditation more because, um, one thing that is tough about working in wildlife or animal care, whether you're working at an animal shelter or you're a burnout, veterinarian, right? is burnout, but they call it compassion fatigue because it's actually oh, a it. like yeah. more serious version of burnout where people actually commit suicide. It's really sad. So I, I remember I went to this one dog behavior conference in Des Moines, Iowa with Dr. Sophia Yen. She's an amazing veterinarian that actually wanted to do more for her clients and animals because most of vet school is just focused on the physical health of animals and not the actual mental and behavioral health of animals. In fact, I think most vet schools only spend one day, maybe five max on dog behavior or cat behavior. And so it's, that
0: sounds like our doctors who only spend right? like six hours learning about nutrition. <laughs> exactly.
1: It's, it's crazy. So you're only treating half the animal, you're only treating half the person, right? If you're only taking into account, you know, physical health and not mental health. So I have taken upon myself, as just an individual and a person who wants to thrive as well, you know, not just the animals in my care, but I will only be able to help as many animals if I don't take care of myself. So I've really been looking into meditation and different people talking about the mind-body connection. I think Joe Dispenza has a lot of cool information about the placebo effect and kind of harnessing that in your brain for your overall physical health and mental health. Um, so that's something that I've been really working on. I think COVID actually helps me get there in terms of just spending more time inside, living a slightly slower lifestyle and just really trying to think about like, what components of our life do we want to keep? What makes us happy? What makes us healthy? Um, and so, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm so tied to productivity and that tied to my self worth that I often don't look at just happiness in general and what that looks like. And for me, it's changing the world and working for a nonprofit and making the world a better place and like it's really sad because you just, just like people who are bankers, who are trying to climb the corporate ladder, I'm doing the same, but I deem it more appropriate and uh, superior, quote unquote, because I work for a nonprofit and I'm helping wildlife who, you know, they don't have a voice and I'm here to help them. And it just still can spiral out of control. It can still become super unhealthy mentally. So what what is it that people who work in nonprofit, whether it be to help other humans or animals or nature or whatever it is you're doing to help make this world a better place, or you could be working in for profit and still trying to do something. Um, how to, How do you get to a happier state? And for me, it's been meditating and just trying to like literally rewire my brain, literally find a state of happiness nirvana whatever you want to call it um spending more time working out obviously endorphins are great i've hired a personal trainer so i've just been working on that which has been really fun my job is already incredibly physical so for me injury prevention is really important a lot of zookeepers Mm. uh blow out their backs lifting bales of hay or bags of feed things like that so that's really important you know an average day for me at the zoo is like Two to three thousand calories that I burn just in eight hours, and you're hiking anywhere from like eight to twenty fifty flights stairs, depending on the terrain that you're working on. Um, so it's yeah. very physical. How much schooling
0: did you have to do? <laughs> <I> know, <laughs> like, right? like rethinking. Like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I want in.
1: Right, and I, I spend very little time on the computer, which is uh. great. But on the flip side, like I do feel like. Uh, I would like to do a little bit more research, and and so I am finding ways to do that both in and out of work in my field. Um, But yeah, what contributes to, to happiness and mental welfare? And for me, it's just working on, you know, obviously nutrition, and then working out for injury prevention, and lastly, meditation, so. Um, new experiences are fun for me. That's one of the reasons why I work with animals as well. I love traveling and that was out the window with COVID. So I had to find things to do more locally. I started doing up paddle boarding. I've taken some surf lessons. I know you're super into surfing, so that's been fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, just trying to spend time safely with friends, you know, at a distance. Um, luckily I've been vaccinated. So, um, hopefully that'll be less of a concern in terms of just spending face-to-face time with people. I think that's so important for our health as well, because we are social animals and we forget that and we take that for granted and it's Mm -hmm. important.
0: Yeah. Maybe another time we could talk about some other topics that are just running through my head right now, but, um, (laughs) but yes, happiness is, is a, you know, growth and happiness and, you know, productivity and finding your net worth or your self worth and, improving ourselves and yeah that's why I want to have these conversations and and you know like talking about nature and you know the holistic viewpoint of you know the world that we live in is, is very very important so um thank you for bringing up one of the three final questions <laughs> so where are you pursuing growth in your life
1: um so it's a combination of both just trying to pursue things related to my job and outside of work because it's so easy for people that do what they love to just have their career take over their life and i'm totally guilty of that where i will just spend time outside of work researching things you know talking to other zookeepers about what they're doing with their animals to help them you know live a wonderful long life where they are really thriving in our care so you do sometimes just have to take a step back and be like, okay, I'm just going to go check out this new brunch spot with my girlfriends and I'm going to do what everyone else does, you know, for fun. Or, um, I will just hop on the phone with friends or go to one of your fabulous barbecues and uh, hang out I when that used to happen. To, to happen
0: again. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, things like that are important for just getting out and distracting ourselves. Um, Physical activity is great. I love trying new new things. So one thing that's been on my ra- radar is kiteboarding because I've done sailing mm. and windsurfing before. It looks Be super cool, one. but it, it, it looks crazy as well.
0: So side, side tangent, um, I was learning how to kiteboard and surf at the exact same time. Okay. <clears throat> and... um I went on, I took some lessons, and then I went on, like, a three-day trip to St. Croix. Um, okay. when this was when I was living in the U.S. Virgin Islands, so it wasn't, like, a big trip. Right. Um, and took a professional lesson, and then, like, I had this helmet on, and the dude had, like, a, a waterproof walkie-talkie that was, like, zip-tied to the side of the helmet, <laughs> which essentially, because you have both hands on the handle... Is just one person talking at you. There's not really a conversation because right. they're in a boat that's pretty far away. <laughs> and um, sounds delightful. Yeah, and like I'm a fairly competent, athletic person, but like, when and you're, you're
1: comfortable in the water. I mean, I've seen y- you. Yes, yeah.
0: and when you like when you're doing something new and you don't know what you're doing, but you're doing it well, it's actually quite dangerous because <laughs> mm. like I'd be going and then I'd mess up at very high velocity. And um, long story short, I swallowed a lot of seawater. I, sm- like, smashed into the water a bunch of times. Yeah, that and hurts. Um, I ended up getting, um, what is it, like, sun sickness or whatever. It was, like, a couple steps below sun poisoning.
1: Oh, wow. Where
0: I was vomiting. Uh, I was uh, shivering. Mind you, it's, like, 80 degrees outside. Yeah. And I have all my clothes on and I'm shivering sure and sweating and cold. Yeah. And, like, That's and I literally funny. go, I, I was like, <laughs> fuck this sport. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm out. Done. Like I'm done with this one. Like this one's too hard. Like, and well,
1: it's so funny. I kind of felt that way a little bit with surfing. Cause the first few times that I tried it, I got like major bruises. Like I got a yeah. black eye one time. I literally got a bruise on my ass. And I say to this day, surfing literally kicked my ass. Um, but I actually uh, slowly stuck with it and got the right instruction. And that was fun. So, you know, i still don't feel comfortable enough going out surfing on my own it's not something i would do but i do enjoy it when i have an instructor who's like pushing me into waves and yeah
0: and like and for no real reason other than just like your own personal warning of like kiteboarding is a little different because like you have this like let's say a small kite of like eight meter Mm -hmm. eight square meters of Cloth that's literally designed to go make you go as fast as you can, and yeah. uh, it's attached to you. Yeah, yeah. and if, so if things you, go wrong, yeah, uh, it just goes it and you, you takes you with you. So just yeah. be careful with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but cool. Um, so, what's one message in all of the topics that we talked about environmentalism, zoos, uh, all, all the personal health, mental health like, yeah, what's one message you'd like to leave our listeners with right now?
1: Um, you know, it's just I think that we win more battles by lifting each other up than tearing each other down, regardless of of what project you're working on. And I think that should be taken not just within your local community, but your international community. Um, I think a lot of people, for instance, you know, when you're looking at COVID in China, there's been so many sad instances of hate crimes towards Asians, um, or just overall disdain for the entire country of China, um, for just the the pandemic originating over there. Um, yeah, there are a lot of things that I don't agree with in terms of their communist government over there, um, illegal wildlife trafficking. But if you turn them into the enemy, like we're not going to get anywhere, you know, it's not going to be productive. So I just, think that there is a way to hold people accountable. I'm not saying that that shouldn't happen, but at the same time work to make partnerships and alliances and lift each other up. So if we can do that, whether it's as a conservation organization or individuals or on a national level, uh, it's going to set us up all for success instead of failure. Wonderful. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, if people have more questions about the San Diego Zoo or any kind of environmental stuff or want to get involved with preserving nature and sure. zoos and stuff like that, can people reach out to you, and where would yeah. that be?
1: Um, you can reach out to me via email um, or Instagram. Um, my handle is G-M-U-N-O-Z 1204 on Instagram, and then um, I have a Gmail account. We can post that um, in the description other than that, um, I, I just wanted to like, lay out just a slight disclaimer though, okay. like as a, an employee for the San Diego Zoo, I am not speaking on behalf of the San Diego Zoo because that is really important. Yes. I am not like part of the PR department, I am not one of their trained spokespersons. I just I want to be able to just share my experiences as a wildlife care specialist and um, just a resident of the planets and you know, San Diego area. Um, it's been fun, you know, just talking about my career with people. People are yeah. so curious. Everyone thinks of it as a dream job. And for me, it is a dream job, but it's not for everyone. You know, it's messy, physical job. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I am by no means, um, yeah. a spokesperson for San Diego Zoo.
0: Don't worry about it. <laughs> That'll be Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, well, thank you for your time. We'll put all that in the show notes and, um, everybody have a great day.